Hello, and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Margaret Walls. Today, we have the inaugural episode in our multi-part series we're calling Climate Hits Home, in which we describe how climate change is manifesting in cities and towns across the United States and how those cities and towns are addressing it. We're beginning the series with the discussion of sea level rise. My guest today is Skip Stiles. Skip is Executive Director of Wetlands Watch, which is a nonprofit organization in Norfolk, Virginia, that works on protection of coastal wetlands, smart land use management in floodplains, land conservation, and citizen education about sea level rise and coastal flooding issues. Wetlands Watch was founded in 1999, and it's become one of the most important organizations in Virginia, working with state and local governments on climate adaptation and resilience. So we're going to talk with Skip about sea level rise in his hometown of Norfolk and the surrounding Tidewater region of southeastern Virginia. A recent study found that Norfolk has the highest rate of relative sea level rise on the East Coast. And the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, projects that the region is going to see between 85 and 125 days per year of high tide flooding by 2050. So these are some serious problems. Norfolk is a um, great place for us to be talking about these issues. So we're going to talk to Skip about what these problems look like kind of on the ground, how they affect day-to-day life, and some of the ranges of policies and programs that are designed to address the problem. Stay with us. So hello, Skip. It's really great to have you here today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Margaret. Glad to help kick off the series. Thank you. And um, on our podcast, we always begin, before we dive into the meat of the issues, we like to talk about, learn a little bit about our guests and how they came to kind of do what they do. So can you share a little bit about yourself and your background and how you came to work on these issues of conservation and flooding and climate change in Virginia? Sure. Um, the the work that we're doing today for me started, it's, it's part of an arc that started in the mid-1970s. I, uh, I took a job with a congressman who was one of the early early leaders on climate change. He and Al Gore used to push these issues back then. And I worked there for 22 years. And, you know, we were constantly pushing for more work on climate change impacts. And um, so I had this early, early introduction to climate change. And then, you know, fast forward 10 years or so after I left Congress, I got hooked up with Wetlands Watch and reintroduced to climate change. I was quite surprised at how far the impacts had advanced since the last time I looked at it. But the work that we were doing was at the local level, and it was um, so much more challenging, frankly, as a policy issue than the work we were doing in Congress. Um, I was really surprised at, at how complicated this issue is when you begin to try to change things at the community level. So it's it's been fun to to sort of transverse this arc from national politics to local politics. Right. Yes, I can see that. We're going to talk about some of that. Um, So, Skip, I gave a little background on sea level rise in the Norfolk area and the uh, seriousness of the problem there. But can you just 
describe for our listeners like what this looks like. When we talk about sea level rise, where it's I always like to say it's kind of an insidious problem. It's a gradual thing. It's not like one day we wake up and the sea is going to be higher. So just can you just describe it for us? Um, give some examples to maybe the disruptions in daily life that you see and like challenges for local governments. And also I'm curious about how you've seen things change over time and if people in the region sort of recognize that and, and talk about it. Yeah, so a lot of a lot of what we see are things like increasing sunny day flooding. So just two weeks ago, we had salt water on the road and people were driving through it and it was completely sunny. Um, you see fish as roadkill. Um, it's, um, it's this constant change, uh, people's front lawns, Bermuda grass being overtaken by marsh grass as the, as the lawns become increasingly inundated from the salt water. Um, we get calls from my kids' high school saying there's going to be a late start to school or after school activities are canceled due to flooding. You know, when I lived up north, you had... You had snow days, and now we get flood days down here. So it's this constant—it's this constant um, reminder that things are changing, and and it's not just um, sea level rise. I went over to pick my daughter up from track practice at her high school, which is about a mile from the house. We had a downpour, and I didn't get home for an hour because all the roads were flooded. So it's this—it's this constant problem that we've gotten for the cities, especially. A city like Norfolk that has infrastructure that's hundreds of years old, <laughs> you know, our stormwater system's barely adequate today. So when you put this additional stress on it, it becomes very expensive, very difficult. Um, stormwater systems that are supposed to take water out of the neighborhoods with sea level rise, the water's coming the other way, back up the stormwater pipes into the neighborhoods. Um, having to elevate roads, uh, there's just lots of little things that are changing as the waters come more and more frequently. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Um, so there are a number of different approaches for managing these problems, and we're going to talk about a few of them and what's going on at the local level. But first, I want to start at the state level, because I, as I understand it, and some of this I've learned from you, Skip, the state of Virginia has done a few good things in recent years and passed some sort of innovative new laws kind of really leaning into enhancing climate resilience in a number of ways. So can you tell us about that and some of what you feel are the most important things the state has done? Yeah, be because we've got these impacts, because they're clearly increasing over time, and we've got the highest rate of, of measured sea level rise on the East Coast and the highest rate of projected sea level rise here in coastal Virginia, what's happened is this issue has become less of an argument over politics and more of, of what, it, when I was in politics, you call a constituent issue. You've got wet, angry people in your community who need fixes, and they don't want you arguing about climate change. They want fixes. So when this issue is turned into a, a, a constituent issue for politicians, a lot of the resistance to the needed policies starts to fall away. So I think starting in 2020 and in 2021, our state legislature began passing a series of um, laws that probably put Virginia at, at the head of the line or pretty near the front of the line nationally in terms of measures to deal with sea level rise. The the state joined this uh, regional greenhouse gas initiative, which is a if you're a power plant 
emitter emitting carbon dioxide in the state, you have to go buy offsets. You go to this regional greenhouse gas initiative, or REGI as it's called, you buy credits. Virginia joined that. It's the southernmost state to have joined REGI. But also, when they set it up, they said, oh, 45% of the money that comes back to the state goes into a flood fund. So we have this statewide flood fund. It's not just coastal. It deals with riverine flooding as well. So we've got a flood fund that has a, an assured funding source. And we've, we've distributed hundreds of millions of dollars so far from that fund. Um, at the same time, the state became the first state in the country to write climate change into its wetlands regulations. And also, we have in this state, the, the zone behind the wetlands, the, the shoreline behind the wetlands, is also protected. They also put climate change in that. So our shoreline regulatory system has sea level rise and climate change built into it. Again, only state in the country. Um, they have put sea level rise and well, they put climate change into our septic regulations. Um, one of the things that's happening with both sea level rise and more rainfall is septic systems are failing. So in rural areas, this is a big problem. Not only do the systems not work, but they're also polluting the waterways. So now um, this year, they're going to be issuing regulations and we'll be the first state in the country to do that. And then our Department of Transportation has issued new engineering guidelines for um, transportation structures that include a suite of climate change impacts from increasing salinity in the estuaries to increased rainfall. And it's the first State Department of Transportation I've found that has these regulations, uh, these new design um, standards. So across the board, there are all these provisions in place. Um, here in Southeast Virginia, all of our localities, when they're doing long-range land use plans, have to look at climate change and sea level rise. So now we're starting to build this global problem into the local land use actions that localities are taking. Um, our challenge now is to build these programs out and implement them. And because they're first in the nation, there's a lot of work to be done in figuring out how you actually how you actually work this these programs. But um, you know, having the funding, having the, the planning, having the regulations um, provides us with a suite of, of, of uh, policies that are going to help us get ahead of this issue. Yeah, I think the important thing there, it seems to me, is this, you know, we say all the time, I've said myself and others, that if we're not taking climate change into account, we're building these infrastructure and other things that are long-lived. And, you know, 50 years from now, we're expecting them to do the job they do today. We have to take these things into account. So that's that's really interesting to me. Um, I think one of the things that Virginia is doing is making what are called living shorelines. There's a living shorelines legislation that makes a kind of natural nature-based approaches uh, in coastal areas to sort of preventing erosion and loss of wetlands, a kind of a default option. Uh, maybe you can talk about that a little bit, because I know wetlands protection restoration is a goal that Wetlands Watch was founded on. So um, maybe just tell our listeners a little bit about the value of coastal wetlands and salt marshes and maybe what use have seen in terms of wetlands loss and maybe how things look today. Okay. Yeah, I, I forgot to mention the living shorelines because that actually predated um, all of the, the climate change legislation. So in Virginia, if you if you're going to uh, build a structure along the shoreline to control erosion, the state says it has to be a living shoreline unless you prove that you can't build one for whatever the geomorphic and other 
other conditions. But basically, its uh, default is a living shoreline, which is a, a much gentler way of protecting erosion while also expanding the um, the ecosystem services, the, the environmental benefits. Um, so the wetlands in Virginia, I mean, there's that. The, our, our colleagues at the North Carolina Coastal Federation have a great bumper sticker that says, no wetlands, no seafood. And um, that's, you know, 80 to 90 percent of the the fish and finfish, shellfish species, both sport and commercial, spend part of their time in uh, tidal wetlands. And so their essential fish habitat, their essential bird habitat, they provide um, a great deal of um, nutrient take-up. The nutrient pollution, nitrogen, phosphorus, uh, these wetlands soak it up like sponges and process it. And, you know, the plants grow on those nutrients, but it keeps the the excess nutrients out of the waterways and keeps the algal blooms down. Um, the wetlands help buffer wave action, so you have um, storm loss reduction because of wetlands. And so you know, there's a whole suite of values that, that wetlands provide, that the tidal wetlands we're talking about here. The non-tidal wetlands provide a whole other set of flood control um, protections and the rest. So lots, and they're all for free. So you've got all of these free services. All you got to do is keep your wetlands. But since John Smith showed up here, we've already lost about half of our wetlands in Virginia because of development um, and, uh, you know, not taking care of it, of our wetlands. I mean, the the wetlands laws didn't really kick in until the 70s. So we've lost about half of our tidal wetlands already. Um the problem going forward is that with the rates of sea level rise we're seeing, the wetlands cannot stay in place. Wetlands can trap sediments and grow vertically, oh, about two feet a century. But we've got sea level rise that's now looking at three to four feet at least this century. So the only choice then for the wetlands is to transgress horizontally, move inland, move upland, whatever you want to call it. When the, as the, as the waterline moves up the shoreline, the wetlands will move with it stay in the intertidal zone until they hit a bulkhead, a road, a marina, someone's house, until there's some hard structure in the way. And so when we started our work back in 2006, we um, sat down with some scientists from the Virginia Institute of Marine Science and looked at the projections and said, you know, it looks like we're going to lose between 50 and 80 percent of our remaining tidal wetlands unless we can get these hardened structures out of the way. And um, that's the the big challenge that we've got is how do we allow for marsh migration and the continuance of all of these free services that we don't pay a dime for? Um, how do we allow the wetlands to move uphill with sea level rise? That is the big challenge because we're now, with higher rates of sea level rise, we're seeing wetlands lost estimates that go as high as 80 and 90 percent, um, you know, by 2080, by a little after mid-century. And that's very disturbing. So um, this is the challenge that we're facing. We got into this. We went out with a message that said, hey, save your wetlands from climate change. And um, initially, the challenge was getting people to accept the problem. And then it was to get them to begin ad adapting. And, and in Virginia, as I outlined earlier, we've made great progress on that so far. Is it enough? 
you know, that's that's what we're facing now is can we keep up with the tide? Right. Uh, Skip, I want to turn now to talk about and rather than the natural infrastructure like wetlands, hard infrastructure, levees, seawalls, and the like. And I want to ask you about the planned approach in Norfolk, and that's a set of flood walls and levees and tide gates, and pump stations that would be, as I understand it, constructed by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers and jointly paid for by the Corps and the city. And now Norfolk is not the only coastal city embarking on such investments and they are controversial in many locations, I would say, um, Miami and New York or other examples. So can you talk about this planned approach? What's the sentiment in Norfolk? Where do things stand right now in terms of implementing this large infrastructure project? Well, this is a fresh issue for us because we just um, approved the partnership agreement with the Corps this week, um, our city council moved ahead. We were arguing for a pause. We pointed that that Miami had paused it. Um, Naples, Florida, Collier County paused their program, uh, their coastal storm risk management project, because they had concerns about it. Um, we have a lot of concerns about the fact that this is primarily hardened infrastructure. There's some places where you've got to have hardened infrastructure. You know, we're a big port city, and you can't you know, you can't tie a tanker up to a living shoreline. You've got to have, you've got to have a hard shoreline. But the rest of the city doesn't necessarily need all of that. So we were arguing for more nature-based solutions. The big problem with these projects, though, and these are all of them from New York to Miami, they're only focused on preventing storm surge. The big the big storm surges from like Hurricane Sandy. They don't deal with rainfall flooding and the increased rainfall we're seeing. Um, you know, in, in, in Virginia, they just did a statewide study, and they said, you know, rainfall intensity has increased 18% in the last 20 years. So we've got more rainfall. Well, this doesn't deal with it at all. It doesn't deal with sea level rise because the gates they've got in place will stay open most of the year. It's not going to deal with that sunny day flooding that I was talking about. We're still going to have, you know, fish as roadkill because the the floods that we get are not high enough to trigger these gate closures. Our big problem with it was that the study in, in Norfolk does not have all of the water quality impacts outlined. And, you know, I've been in and around Corps of Engineer projects since the mid-70s when I worked in Congress. I've never seen a project of this size go forward without water quality studies. So um, the project's approved. It's going forward. So we're just going to have to work with the city and the Corps and see you know, what we can do with it. We are in touch, though, with the folks in Naples, with the folks in New York. Because this Norfolk is farther ahead than any other city, we're working with local organizations to inform them about what worked and what didn't work in Norfolk so that maybe those localities can get a better deal out of this than we did. Mm. Yeah, so interesting. I also want to talk about uh, zoning and land use regulations. Um, and these are really important ways that we guide development um, to particular areas and establish what kinds of development we want to see in different locations and so forth. But of course, we have a system of private property rights in the U.S., so changing zoning codes can be fraught. So maybe you could tell us a little bit about what's going on in Norfolk with this. I know the city has adopted a resilience overlay zone. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? What are some of the components in terms of sort of implementation and how it might affect development patterns? Sure. Let me just start with um, 
we quickly concluded that local governments are the key to sea level rise adaptation because they do control land use. They're the only entity that does. And so where a person is safe or unsafe on the landscape has to do with the land use issues. Have the zoning laws allowed you to build there or not? Or are there conditions if you build there? Norfolk has put in place a zoning ordinance that is beginning to impose conditions on the whole city. You have to have a certain number of what they call resilience points. You have to do things that are um, resilient, environmentally sound. But in the lower-lying coastal areas, they've imposed an additional set of restrictions. For example, if you landscape, you have to use salt-tolerant plants because the salt water's there so often, it's killing everything off. So little things like that, but big things like if you want to develop in the upper part of the city, the, the higher part of the city, you can go down to this coastal overlay area, the lower part of the city, and actually purchase the development rights of somebody who says, look, my house floods too often, I'm willing to sell it. Uh, the developer can buy that property and then transfer those rights to develop get the resilience points to build in the in the higher part of the city. So the idea is it's what in, in land use is called transfer of development rights, but it's using a market approach. It, the government's not involved at all. You're telling a builder, hey, you want development points. Here's somebody over here who wants out of their house. Go do a deal and I'll give you the resilience points and you can build the apartments in the higher part of the city. So the idea is to try to transfer the development out of the lower, soggier parts of Norfolk into the upland. And it's it really is innovative. It's the only one of these that we were able to find in the country. And we're working with the city to also bring some other financial incentives into it, like um, using land trusts, for example, to, um, to sort of sweeten the deal, put a conservation easement on a house that a developer is willing to buy, and um, put an easement on it, allow the person to stay in the house until some trigger point is reached. These are called rolling easements. So the deal would go down today. The person, though, would be able to stay in their house for a while until either they decided they wanted to leave or the property got too wet. And at that trigger point, then the easement is is executed and the person needs to leave. So we're trying to sort of provide a soft landing for people who, through no fault of their own, are in the air quotes here, wrong part of the landscape and incentivize this Norfolk zoning ordinance to help move people uphill. And then if it works, we can export it to other areas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm really interested to follow this. Um, I want to turn our attention, if you, if you don't mind, to kind of the distribution of impacts of sea level rise and coastal flooding. So I think by now, it's pretty widely recognized that lower income and socially vulnerable populations tend to be more heavily impacted by flooding um, than sort of their wealthier counterparts. There's live disproportionately in floodplains, whether that's due to historical discrimination or lower prices or what have you. Um, they have greater difficulty recovering from disasters, often a lack of flood insurance, personal savings, and so forth. And then sometimes neighborhoods uh, have people have found are left behind in terms of where the money goes for hazard mitigation and resilience investments. So um, the Tidewater region, the Hampton Roads region, Norfolk in particular, I think is pretty diverse. You have some fairly wealthy neighborhoods, some poorer ones. So can you, Skip, like tell us a little bit about what you see in terms of the distributional impacts of flooding in the region? And is this an issue that is getting attention in the policy world when we're trying to build resilience? 
Yeah, so anybody along the shore here is getting wet, rich rich or poor. So the, the impacts are pretty much universally felt. It's the access to solutions that then becomes the issue. Uh, one issue that came up with our flood wall, for example, there's a lower income neighborhood. And because the house values are not as high there, their benefit cost analysis, which is a process the Corps of Engineers goes through to figure out what solutions make the most economic sense, precluded them from getting a flood wall. They were going to have their houses elevated and that was it. And so that caused quite a controversy um, and exposed the problems that we have with the way that people compute benefits. Um, now, it was fixed because the the city and the Corps are going to seek some exemptions to the conventional way they compute these benefits. But that's a big problem. Um, a lot of these programs bypass lower income areas because they're not worth as much, air quotes here again, monetarily. And it's only when you put some of the historic and socioeconomic pieces in that the playing field gets leveled. And so that's something I think that, that needs to, to be done more and more. We do a lot of work. Um, we have a program where we bring university students, engineering and architecture students into neighborhoods to do um, resilience design work for the community. We produce it in, in partnership with the residents. Um, and we specifically pick these low moderate income areas. And the idea here is that if the funding becomes available, these communities will have design plans in their hand and we'll move to the front of the line for the distribution of the money. So we're we're trying to to see if we can give a leg up to some of these neighborhoods because the impacts are felt universally, but the political and regulatory processes disadvantage them in the ways that the monies are distributed. Right. Yeah, that's that's great because technical assistance of various kinds is really needed. So that's that's a neat program you're doing. I recently saw an article in the Wall Street Journal about Norfolk and the Hampton Roads region. And the theme of that piece, which was on April 26, was published, is really that y'all are ahead of others in addressing sea level rise and coastal flooding issues. I, I thought there was an interesting quote from the chief resilience officer in Charleston, South Carolina, where they had their own problems, where he said, we're about two years behind Norfolk. So I guess I want to ask you kind of my last substantive question here is you all have had the problems longer. You have a big government presence in the region, um, military bases and so forth, which may have helped bring attention to the issues. And I know you've been involved at Wetlands Watch for many years. So I want to ask you big picture questions about what are some of the lessons you've learned and maybe some important things you would advise, I guess, for other communities on how to make progress on this building coastal resilience problem. I, I think the, the biggest thing is to organize the support, um, you know, in the community and engage the process early. I mean, that's one of the things that's worked here so well is that um, the because the community sees the impacts, they're energized and engage in the planning process, um, go to the meetings. I mean, it's, it's this constant presence that, um, that causes the issue to be at the front of the agenda, at the front of the funding plans. And so the, the first thing is, is, you know, it's basic politics, just organize and make your presence known. I think the other thing that we've seen here is, um, there's, uh, 
the the partnerships that develop there's some non-traditional partnerships that develop you know it's it's always the environmentalists saying fix this fix that but um you know we've reached out to the to the faith communities uh, the business communities being affected here this is an economic issue and so we've engaged the um the private sector on this as well because resilience is not just resilience from the natural you know resources side resilience is also from the finance side is your economy going to remain intact so i think finding finding those partners is essential um one other thing that's that's proven useful is is taking full advantage of these teachable moments um we we again see sea level rise uh as a sort of a daily impact and so it's it's easier and easier unfortunately for us to get our message across um so when i was in politics there was a cynical the cynical phrase never let a good disaster go to waste we have seen such progress following storms and flood events and so having being prepared to move into the policy space into the community organizing space on the heels of an event is is critical because that's when you can make a tremendous amount of policy progress mm-hmm. yeah yeah good point and uh, you're not the first person i've heard say that make that point so it's good to hear all right, we'll skip. This has been great. We, we want to close our podcast with our regular feature, which we call Top of the Stack. And that's where we're going to ask you to recommend something to our listeners, a book, an article, a podcast, um, anything really. Um, do you have something you'd like to suggest to our listeners? What's on the top of your stack? Oh, something I constantly turn back to. That was actually two books, really. Um, Edward, Edward Wilson's The Future of Life, which is a great he's such a great writer and it's it's really about um the problems we face and solutions and and eo wilson is just wonderful and then this this being not far after earth day i every earth day i go back and i read the classic um uh, aldo leopold sand county almanac and um there are just there's just it really is a a book that has stood the test of time and his essay the land ethic in that almanac is one that uh I go back to a lot for for inspiration during those dark moments where I go, oh my gosh, are we ever going to be able to fix this? Yeah, Uh, heartily recommend that book as well. So Skip, it's really been a pleasure having you on Resources Radio. I'm so glad we're able to get you to kick off our Climate Hits Home podcast series. It's really fascinating to learn about what's going on in Norfolk. So much is going on there. Um, And it's great to hear about all your all's work at Wetlands Watch. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for taking this initiative. Uh, Great, great effort. You've been listening to Resources Radio, a podcast from Resources for the Future. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. This podcast is made possible with the generous financial support of our listeners. You can help us continue producing these kinds of discussions on the topics that you care about by making a donation to Resources for the Future online at rff.org donate. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental energy and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. 
RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.